Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, well, thank you, Glenda, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Progress in the Treatment of Multiple Myeloma. And there has been progress, and you're going to hear about it during the program today. Um, and today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And really, because of that collaboration and your interest in the program today, we have over 427 participants on the call today. And you come from all over the United States, so from different regions, from um, from urban and suburban and rural areas as well, from all different parts. And we also have international participants from Canada, India, Ireland, Singapore, and United Kingdom. So we're a bit of a global call as well. And really it's a credit to each of you that you are clearly a group of information seekers. And um, today's um, program is supported by Abdi and an educational grant from Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC. And we really want to thank them for their support of the program today. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today. I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. William Bensinger. And Dr. Bensinger is, is with the Center for Blood Disorders and Stem Cell Transplantation, SCI's Personalized Medicine Program, Myeloma and Transplant Program, Swedish Cancer Institute. And Dr. Bensinger is going to present an overview of multi-myeloma, current standard of care, new treatment approaches and clinical trials, and the role of transplantation. It's my pleasure now to turn over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Bensinger. Thank you, Carolyn. It's always a pleasure to be and participate in these meetings. So first off, what is multiple myeloma? Multiple myeloma is a cancer of the bone marrow, specifically a cancer involving plasma cells. Plasma cells are normal antibody-producing cells, and they reside normally in the bone marrow. When you develop myeloma, these abnormal cells fill up the bone marrow space in an uncontrolled fashion. And as part of this process, usually produce large amounts of proteins in the blood and urine that we call monoclonal proteins. And this process leads to anemia, which are low red blood cells, kidney function abnormalities, and bone disease. The cause of myeloma is not known, but we, we recognize that the majority of patients have important genetic alterations in their plasma cells that lead to the development of the disease. Now, myeloma is not an uncommon disease, but uh, it's, not a, it's not exactly common to, compared to other cancers. There are about 1% to 2% of uh, patients that developed this in the US, about 30,000 new cases per year. And at any one time, more than 120,000 people in the US are living with this disease. The median age at diagnosis is 69 years, and this is important because many treatments, such as transplant, may be limited to older patients, who, especially if they have uh, other health problems. The disease is treatable with chemotherapy, but at the present time, generally thought to be not curable. However, great progress has been made in the treatment with new drugs and the use of autologous stem cell transplant, and the survival has more than doubled in the last 10 years. We try to distinguish between an earlier phase of the disease we call MGUS, in which case patients have just a small amount of protein in, in their blood or urine and a small number of plasma cells in their bone marrow. These patients may never develop active myeloma. The risk is about 20% over a 20-year period of time. But then uh, patients, some of these patients will go on to develop higher levels of protein in plasma cells, and we call that smoldering or asymptomatic myeloma. Finally, when patients develop active myeloma, they develop what we call CRAB criteria, which is elevated calcium, uh, kidney function abnormalities, anemia, or bone disease. And more recently, there are several biomarkers that have been associated with more active disease, such as a high percentage of plasma cells in the bone marrow 
or an abnormal serum free light chain ratio that's very high, or lesions that are seen on sophisticated scans such as magnetic resonance imaging. Those patients are more likely to be considered to have active disease even without this CRAB criteria. Patients who develop myeloma will develop bone pain, fatigue, weight loss. A small number will develop nerve abnormalities with paresthesias, but about 20% of patients don't have any symptoms at diagnosis. Now, the treatment, uh, the goals of treatment are to control the myeloma disease activity and more specifically improve the symptoms, such as bone damage, bone pain, and fractures, high calcium levels in the blood, uh, the anemia, which can cause fatigue or shortness of breath, the kidney abnormalities that can lead to fatigue, and reduce the incidence of frequent infections. Obviously, the treatment, we want to minimize treatment-related symptoms and prolong a remission, if not ideally cure patients. Now, the treatments uh, that are given usually uh, are very resp responsive in terms of disease control. Combination therapies will have response rates now approaching 100% of patients. Complete responses are... Uh, somewhat less common, but still uh, up to half or more of the patients can achieve complete responses. And stem cell transplant remains an important part of the treatment. And increasingly with the new therapies, the disease is becoming easier to treat. We make, uh, when we judge the treatment response, we talk about remissions, uh, which means there's no sign of the disease, which means that the proteins that are in the blood or urine disappear. Uh, the abnormal plasma cells in the bone marrow disappear. And um, the bone disease, uh, while it doesn't necessarily heal immediately, there are no new lesions. And we make a distinction between a complete remission, which is what I just described, and a partial remission, where there's just a decrease in proteins in the blood or urine and a reduction in the numbers of plasma cells. Increasingly, we're using higher levels of response. There's a term called stringent complete response and even a, what we call molecular remissions because these higher levels of remission are able to distinguish between patients that have very, very low levels of disease and patients that do not. And that's turned out to be a useful marker or way to monitor disease because patients who get the more stringent remissions uh, have better outcomes than patients who do not. Now, in terms of the drugs, the, one of the old standby classes are corticosteroids, which are usually prednisone or dexamethasone, and then the older drugs that, that are often still used are the alkylators, such as cytoxan or cyclophosphamide, Melphalan or, or a drug called bendamustine. We, we sometimes use anthracyclines, although less frequently, doxorubicin or pegylated form of doxorubicin. And the newer drugs include the immunomodulators, which are thalidomide, lenalidomide or revlimid, and pomalidomide or pomalist. Also, proteasome inhibitors, the drugs that we have for those are bortezomib, also called Velcade, carfilzomib, called Kyprolis, or ixazomib, which is also called Ninlaro, and it's an oral proteasome inhibitor. We also have a histone deacetylase inhibitor, panobinostat, and more recently monoclonal antibodies, elituzumab or daratumumab are, are the monoclonal antibodies that are used. Generally, in terms of initial treatment, three drugs are favored over two. Unless patients are quite frail and it's felt they won't tolerate a three-drug regimen, patients uh, generally are offered a transplant because of strong data showing transplant improves outcomes for patients with myeloma. But occasionally, patients who get very good responses to initial therapy sometimes will choose to store their stem cells and delay uh, an early transplant.
We also uh, generally treat patients continuously or with, with either uh, lower doses of the same drugs or use maintenance therapy at a lower dose because of fairly strong data that shows that continuous treatment is better than defined uh, fixed duration treatment. When patients relapse, they're, uh, they can be transplanted a second time or even get a transplant if they've never had one. There are also many new drugs and many new treat, uh, clinical trials. Now, as I mentioned, three drug combinations are better than two. Some of the more common ones use uh, a proteasome inhibitor, bortezomib, with dexamethasone, the steroid, and lenalidomid. Sometimes uh, cytoxan or cyclophosphamide is substituted for lenalidomid. Um, and those are the major ones that are used, but some of the newer combinations using carfilzomib with lenalidomid and dex are being used. And there are trials that are incorporating the antibodies such as daratumumab or elituzumab with uh, lenalidomid and dexamethasone. If patients are not transplanted, there's a very good trial showing a three-drug combination of bortezomib, lenalidomid, and dexamethasone it has very strong activity and improves not only uh, disease control but overall survival. For more frail patients, they may use a, just a two-drug combination such as lenalidomid and dexamethasone or bortezomib and dexamethasone. Now, transplant is still considered uh, a useful treatment for eligible patients, and that's because of higher complete responses than with conventional therapy, longer disease-free survival, and better overall survival. And it is a standard of care in most settings and is generally very well tolerated in patients up to age 70. Older patients can be transplanted if they have a good uh, if they're in good condition and can tolerate it. There are also data showing sometimes tandem transplants or two transplants may be better than one. Allogeneic transplant is a transplant using a donor, and these do have better disease control but have a lot of higher toxicity and mortality, including a condition called graft-versus-host disease. And they're still, allogeneic transplants, while used, are used less and less and are still considered investigational by and large. Now, who are good candidates for autotransplant? As I mentioned, patients who have a good performance status, who have good organ function and responsive disease, but even refractory patients have been shown to benefit from transplant. Generally, they're under age 70, but again, older patients can be done as long as they have a good performance status. We try to avoid certain drugs like melphalan or a drug called BCNU or extensive radiation because it may limit the ability to harvest stem cells. Now, in terms of in, in treatment therapies, as I mentioned, triplets are better than doublets. And so the combination of bortezomib, thalidomide, and dex is better than two drugs such as thalidomide, dex. Uh, imid combinations look better than drugs using cytoxan. So bortezomib, thalidomide, dexamethasone seems to be better than bortezomib, cytoxan, dexamethasone. There was a recent study that's more relevant to patients in the United States using a combination of bortezomib, lenalidomid, and dexamethasone with or without a stem cell transplant. And it was shown that a stem cell transplant still produced better responses and better disease-free survival than patients who just got bortezomib, lenalidomid, and dexamethasone. There was another trial from Europe using uh, incorporating a monoclonal antibody, daratumumab, with a combination that's not used much in the U.S. called VMP, which is uh, bortezomib, melphalan, and prednisone. And it was shown that the, the four-drug regimen with daratumumab was better than the bortezomib, melphalan, prednisone. This is probably uh, specifically not relevant for the U.S., but it may make it easier to use daratumumab as initial therapy with other combinations. 
As I mentioned, for non-transplant patients, uh, the combination of bortezomib, uh, lenalidomid, and dexamethasone, the triplet was better than a doublet of just lenalidomid and dexamethasone as well. And for relapses, uh, there's various combinations that have been uh, shown to be better, such as carfilzomib, lenalidomid, and dexamethasone, or high-dose carfilzomib, dexamethasone is better than bortezomib and dexamethasone. There's a combination using the monoclonal antibody elituzumab with lenalidomid and dexamethasone, and that's better than two drugs with lenalidomid and dexamethasone. Other ones, uh, there's trials with the oral proteasome inhibitor, exazomib. There's a trial with panabinostat, and then, of course, daratumumab in relapsed patients as well. Now, in terms of promising new drugs, there's a, a class of drugs called PD-1 and PD-L1 inhibitors. These are so-called checkpoint inhibitors, and what they do is they interfere with a mechanism by which cancer cells hijack T cells and prevent T cells from attacking them in the body by binding through this mechanism called PD-1. And these antibodies interfere with that interaction and allow the immune cells to then attack the tumor cells. And PD-1 inhibitors are widely used now in a variety of solid tumors and certain blood cancers. They haven't shown as much promise by themselves in myeloma, but there are combinations with other drugs that look very promising. And I think you're going to see more data on this in the coming years. So I wouldn't uh, say the checkpoint inhibitors are standard, but they're, they really are looking very promising. The other new change are CAR T cells. That's CAR is an acronym for chimeric antigen receptor T cells. These are T cells that are removed from the patient and engineered in the lab to recognize a protein on the surface of the myeloma cells. The most commonly used target is called BCMA, which is, stands for B-cell maturation antigen. It's widely expressed on myeloma cells. And there are at least four different uh, types of CAR T-cells that have been described and reported at meetings and several of them show great promise. And so there's a lot of trials with um, CAR T cells that are coming down the pike. Another uh, interesting strategy are called uh, bite molecules. These are basically a highly modified antibody that are used to target the tumor cell and then recruit a T cell in the patient that would otherwise not recognize the cancer cell and cause it to uh, kill the cancer cell. Basically, it's, a, it's a, a, a way in vivo to do what CAR T cells do. And these bite molecules are just beginning to be tested in myeloma, and I think you're going to see a lot of interesting developments in that area. There are other classes of new drugs. There's other histone deacetylase inhibitors and there's a nuclear protein transpoint inhibitor. It's really a, a very exciting time to be a researcher, uh, an investigator in this field, and I'm, I'm just pleased at all the progress that has been made. And with that, I think I'll stop and uh, turn it back over to you, Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Bensinger. That was just a wonderful overview of the treatments and and all the new um, options for people in terms of treatment choices. And so thank you so much. I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Andrew Gee. Dr. Gee is Instructor in Medicine, Harvard Medical School, Center for Multi-Myeloma, Massachusetts General Hospital Cancer Center. Dr. Yi is going to present Reducing Complications of Bone Disease, Practical Tips for Managing Symptoms and Pain, physical activity concerns, tips and guidelines, and communicating with the healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Yi. So um, I thank you, Carolyn, for the introduction. And I also wanted to echo uh, Dr. Bensinger's uh, you know, enthusiasm for the treatments that we're able to offer to our patients in terms of helping them live longer and also not only living longer but also living better and enjoying the fullest life possible. Because whenever I see a new patient, we always talk about, 
know, helping the goals of our treatment to help you live longer and live better. And with that in mind, uh, one of the, as, as many patients in the audience and their caregivers know, you know, one of the defining characteristics of multiple myeloma, you know, compared to many other cancer types out there, is the fact that there can be, you know, bone uh, involvement. Uh, these uh, plasma cells, when they become cancerous, they, when they become myeloma cells, when they live in the bone marrow, they tend to act badly within the bone environment and lead to softening of the bone and and potential for fractures or compression fractures. So about uh, the majority of patients, uh, when they uh, present with a diagnosis of myeloma, can either have uh, symptoms directly related to uh, bone involvement or they have you know, imaging findings that are associated with uh, bone involvement. Now, as Dr. Benzinger mentioned uh, before, you know, we're starting to use more and more uh, sophisticated uh, imaging techniques to better assess for bone involvement. And, you know, the, the historically, we've used uh, the skeletal survey to as an initial approach for identifying bone involvement and to better characterize patients and differentiate between patients who have uh, active multiple myeloma versus uh, monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance or, or smoldering multiple myeloma. And increasingly, uh, to help in make that distinction, we're using more uh, imaging techniques such as uh, MRI, CT scans, uh, as, or, or PET-CT, and, and more recently, we're starting to incorporate um, whole-body low-dose CT, which has uh, the benefit of the CT while decreasing the amount of uh, radiation exposure, which allows this type of uh, imaging to be used more frequently. Now, for managing, uh, you know, when, I, when I think about managing the bone disease associated with multiple myeloma, there are two facets to it. One is you have to you know, control uh, the under control and manage the underlying disease, and as you know, Dr. Bensinger outlined, you know, the treatments for for multiple myeloma have have advanced significantly over the past 10 years, leading to significant improvements uh, in you know in survival. And I think at the same time, that also leads to improvements in preventing uh, bone-related complications. So uh, when I think about bone-related complications, this could include you know, developing a new compression fracture, developing a new bone uh, uh, bone fracture, like in the femur or in the humerus, or having areas that become painful that need radiation. So I think with more effective myeloma treatments, uh, the frequency of that has gone down. And secondly, is also directly related to the fact that we have agents that are specifically aimed at strengthening the bone uh, itself, and historically, uh, the the main class of agents uh, are the class of agents known as the bisphosphonates. And for uh, for many people, you know, people may already be familiar with bisphosphonates in the form of drugs like you know, Fosamax or Boniva, which are used in osteoporosis. And what uh, bisphosphonates do is that they uh, inhibit the ability of the osteoclast to uh, to kind of recycle the bone. So one one thing to appreciate is that the bone is 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 sort of a, a dynamic structure. That's it's not most people think of the bone as being a static entity where it doesn't change, but it turns out the bone is constantly being you know remodeled. There are cells that make that form bone, the osteoblasts. And there are cells that uh, that recycle the bone. We call them osteoclasts. And it turns out that in in multiple myeloma, the osteoclast activity is out of balance compared to the osteoblast activity. So the bone there's increased recycling of the bone by the osteoclasts. And the bisphosphonates uh, actually directly inhibit the ability of the osteoclast to recycle the bone. And in doing so, it, it strengthens the bone. Now, a big advancement in multiple myeloma is to, uh, to, to be able to target these osteoclasts directly, which are, over, which are overstimulated by the myeloma and its associated environment. Uh, 
So there are two drugs that we think about in terms of inhib- <coughs> inhibiting osteoclasts. The first one was is this drug pomidronate, which was you know introduced decades a, a couple decades ago. And I think the main finding when this drug was first introduced was that it not only did it prevent skeletal-related events, but it also significantly improved you know, pain that can be associated with uh, these bone-related events. And the more recent, and I guess now it's not so recent anymore, is this drug uh, Zomeda or Zoledronic Acid. And the key advantage of Zoledronic Acid over pomidronate is that the infusion time is uh, shorter. So I think for, for patients, it's it's more convenient to have an infusion of zoledronic acid uh, compared to a pomidronate. And related, and an important trial that was uh, presented a few years ago showed that um, when they did a head-to-head trial of zoledronic acid or zomeda versus an older bisphosphonate that wasn't as potent, uh, not only was the, the, the patients have better bone-related outcomes, it actually improved, you know, it, patients actually live longer on this more effective bone uh, strengthener, suggesting that there's something to perhaps, if you perhaps uh, alter the environment where these myeloma cells live in, it's, it, you, uh, you help patients live longer. So that was a key finding. And the second important finding uh, related to that is that the benefit of the zoledronic acid was made also applied to patients who did not have any like bone lesions. So, so a question that comes up frequently is, you know, patients will have imaging that they, they don't have any lytic, they don't have any of the uh, myeloma-related or lytic bone lesions, and they found that patients who did not have those lesions also derived benefit from the bone strengthener. Now. A big advance uh, since the beginning of the since in 2018 was the FDA approval of a new uh, bone agent in multiple myeloma, and this is this drug denosumab, also known as uh, Xgeva. And this is a this drug also works on osteoclasts, but it works through a different different mechanism. And it turns out that that in uh, in the environment that these osteoclasts live in, in, in where in the tumor-related environment where these osteoclasts live in, there's increased uh, so, uh, there's this uh, increased amount of this rank ligand, which stimulates the, stimulates the development of osteoclasts, so it leads to more osteoclasts and stimulates their activity. And they found, and people found that this rank ligand, which is a growth factor, uh, is the amount of it is increased in the around myeloma cells and also in in, in cancers in general, which are associated with bone uh, lesions. And this so this drug directly inhibits uh, osteoclasts, but through a uh, through a different or in, it decreases osteoclast activity, but through a different mechanism. And now some of you in the audience may have already heard of this drug because it turns out that. This drug is actually FDA-approved for osteoporosis. It's known as Prolia, uh, where it's given at a lower dose, say, once uh, every six months. And the uh, key finding, the key, we know that uh, this drug, denosumab, has shown uh, efficacy in patients who have prostate cancer, bone-related problems, from prostate cancer or other solid tumors like lung cancer or breast cancer, but the data uh, in multiple myeloma were not mature yet. And this recent uh, trial, which was just uh, uh, presented, uh, showed that head-to-head, uh, this, there was a recent trial which, which demonstrated the efficacy of denosumab uh, in multiple myeloma. Now, specifically, uh, there was a head-to-head trial of uh, denosumab compared to the standard practice zoledronic acid. So the patients were randomized head to head, and they found that uh, denosumab had, you know, similar efficacy as Zomeda, and maybe even a and there's maybe even a trend to to even maybe somewhat better efficacy. But I think a key thing about what makes this, uh, while they both have similar efficacy, maybe a little bit better for uh, denosumab, 
So that remains to be uh, that data remains to be borne out. I think the key thing, the reason why I think the myeloma community is excited about denosumab, uh, are several reasons. One is that many patients who have um, who who have multiple myeloma can have associated kidney trouble. We know that you know one in five patients when they are diagnosed with multiple myeloma have some level of kidney dysfunction, and one of the main limitations with these bone strengtheners is that they can be uh, dependent, the dosing of the Zometa can be dependent on the kidney function. And there's also a concern that the Zometa can actually lead to worsening, can affect, can adversely affect kidney function. And this trial, which compared denosumab to zoledronic acid, found that of the two drugs, uh, the denosumab was significantly uh, friendlier to the kidneys compared to the zoledronic acid. So for patients wh- where a kidney function, whose kidney function um, is somewhat uh, is not great, I think denosumab can be a great uh, way for managing uh, their bone-related uh, uh, disease. So, and the second uh, the second uh, advantage of denosumab is the uh, decreased frequency of acute phase reaction. So uh, there's a proportion of patients I have who when they, or certainly for the first infusion, patients can get you know flu-like symptoms for the first 24 or 48 hours. And the uh, and denosumab has the main advantage of not having the associated flu-like uh, symptoms, you know, which, and, and some patients it can be much more persistent or much more uh, aggravating. So, and then the third uh, advantage for denosumab is the convenience because it's a subcutaneous injection. So there's a lot of convenience. Since I imagine many myeloma patients are familiar with subcutaneous injections, you know, from the bortezomib, I think the denosumab, you know, it's a sub, whereas you don't have to have an intravenous infusion for, with the zoledronic acid. Um, so. A couple of limitations just to appreciate between you know, denosumab versus zoledronic acid is that they both are associated with risk of this condition that called osteonecrosis uh, of the jaw. I mean, it sound, uh, and this is a situation where if someone has a tooth extraction, there's decreased ability to heal around the empty space where a tooth extraction has occurred. So. Uh, both the denosumab and zoledronic acid have this as a potential um, side effect, and that's why we're very conscientious with patients about minimizing um, uh, minimizing heavy-duty dental care, specifically anything that involves like dental extractions or dental implants. We try to minimize usage of denosumab or zoledronic acid before or after that, uh, ideally three months uh, before or after, but you know, cleanings, root canals, fillings—there are no limitations with that. Um, so, so I think that. So I think as a as a day-to-day kind of a practice, I think the, this recent approval, you know, has certainly changed how I handle bone-related uh, problems for some of my patients. Um, and I think the. Uh, so then, you know, some of the other topics that, uh, you know, that uh, Carolyn asked me to, you know, address would be the, uh, you know, more more of the quality of life and, and side effects associated uh, with uh, the treatments. And I think that's one thing, you know, when we hear about these new treatments, we always hear about the, you know, the efficacy in terms of improving in the overall response rate and improving the durability of the response. And I think, you know, oftentimes you don't always um, hear about the uh, potential, you know, side effects and that, that are associated with being on this treatment and being on, on, on this treatment for, for long periods of time since, as uh, Dr. Benzinger mentioned, uh, where the field is moving towards uh, since being on treatment for prolonged periods of time in order to kind of maintain that response. I think that some of the more common uh, complaints that I, I think that probably the biggest thing I hear about that it would be kind of related to some of the GI side effects associated with uh, the treatment, in particular uh, lenalidomide, and, and I tend to hear about that 
more when, not so much when patients are, you know, in the beginning of treatment when they're newly diagnosed or they're in the beginning of treatment. It's more when, you know, after they've had the stem cell transplant or just, or if they're on the maintenance phase of the treatment, whether on the Revlimid uh, by itself. And I think for many patients, that's, that's, that's a, a major complaint. And I think that, and I think many patients may have heard about this already, is that, you know, the way I, I approach that would be, um, you know, I usually start off with either, you know, simple things like using um, Imodium or, also, uh, or Loperamide, which is over-the-counter, because that can be very effective. Uh, sometimes, alternatively, there can be, uh, some patients may also find that Lomodal can be better than Imodium. But longer term, you know, some, there's a, we're starting to use more of this drug called Colistopol, which, um, which is, um, is, a, is something that's historically been used to treat elevated cholesterol, and this drug works by binding bile salts. And there's been this uh, argument that the Revlimid alters bile salt metabolism in the colon, in the gut, and that by binding this excess bile salt, it can help minimize the loose stool. So I think for some patients, the cholistopol uh, can be very helpful in terms of uh, minimizing the, uh, you know, some some of the really annoying uh, loose stool side effects associated with being on Revlimid uh, long term. And you know, just the other day, one uh, the and as a, just related to this, uh, one of my patients just mentioned that you know he tried using, you know, Metamucil like once a day in the morning, and he found that made like a huge difference as well. And that's something that I. Uh, you know that that I'm, I'm probably going to share more with my patients, but I think a theme with some of these, uh, uh, you know, things to improve your quality of life, and sometimes I feel I get most of my useful tips from my patients who tried these things on their own, and I, I find that sometimes can be the best source of information. I think you know the published literature, you know, is doesn't really address this as much, and this is kind of a gap that you know we're all working on on managing. I think that. Um, the, uh, so that's kind of one side effect that can be very bothersome. I think other things in terms of improving quality of life would also be the, the neuropathy uh, that can be associated with, uh, you know, the treatments that we use, uh, particularly, you know, bortezomib can be associated with, you know, significant numbness and tingling uh, in the feet and sometimes can involve the hands. And so there are a couple ways that I – that people have approached this. One is, and this is probably uh, relatively older news, is that, you know, we've moved, we've, patients generally have changed over to subcutaneous injection of bortezomib rather than intravenous, which has less risks of peripheral neuropathy. Um, for managing the, so that's one part. And number two is that some patients who have, you know, significant peripheral neuropathy, sometimes we do change the choice of proteasome inhibitor and the options could include using what and Dr. Bensinger mentioned earlier, such as the drug, the oral drug, uh, Nenlaurol, or which is exasmib, which, which is sort of an oral form of aportasmib. You know, the risk of peripheral neuropathy of that is, is much less with uh, bor, bor, with uh, exasmib than with uh, bortezomib. And then. In addition, I also use uh, you know gabapentin and or Cymbalta to help manage, and that, and that can be helpful. But you know, I do wish we had a treatment that could more effectively completely get rid of neuropathy. And I feel that for some patients, there can always be some um, some residual neuropathy. Another drug that can also be helpful would be Lyrica. Anecdotally, I've had patients where if gabapentin wasn't helpful, then sometimes uh, pregabalin or lyrica can be, can be more helpful. Um, and I think, uh, I think overall, I, I think, you know, having, I think we're all, all looking for, you know, because I think I do appreciate that when patients are on these treatments, they're all on these treatments for, for extended periods of time. And I think one of the mandates for, for us in the field is to kind of come up with better approaches to help uh, to help manage these side effects uh, long-term and help make the treatments better, uh, more effective, and, and more user-friendly for everyone and, and their caregivers who take care of these patients. So, uh, Carolyn, maybe I'll, I'll pause here 
and, and take any questions as well. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Yee. That was so wonderful and wonderfully informative. And really, these are very important issues in terms of just everyone's day-to-day quality of life and um, so very important. And we are going to take questions. I'm just going to say a few words about the service of cancer care, and then we're going to take right, move right into questions. So do prepare your questions because we have wonderful speakers ready to answer them. And so, um, and, um, and Glenda will explain to you how to queue up for questions. Um, so you can start to do that. Actually, Glenda, if you want to do that before I say these few words, just so people can have time to organize their questions, that might be a good idea. Give them a minute or two. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. And again, to ask a question, please press star then one. So I'm just going to say a few words about we recognize that in coping with myeloma or any cancer diagnosis, there are lots of issues that you confront with and deal with with your healthcare team. But there are also issues that really affect you um, financially and practically. Um, and so I just want to go over with you services that you can access for free from cancer care. And there are many other cancer organizations out there, but I'm just going to highlight these few um, few services that you can access from cancer care. Um, we do offer people financial assistance um, with help with transportation and home care. Um, we also have a copay foundation that helps significantly with some costs of care. Um, and we also have a counseling service. Um, so we offer um, one-on-one counseling with our oncology social workers on the telephone or online, and we also offer support groups. And we do our support groups both on the telephone, so telephone support groups, um, some people like that, and we also have online support groups. We at the moment have 120 online support groups on many different types of cancers and also your situation in life, your age and your um, just if you're a caregiver or just many, many different issues. So basically, there is definitely a, a support group for you if that's something you'd be interested in. Many people do find groups helpful just because it means you have a chance to talk with other people who are coping with similar issues. You may have different approaches to them, but nevertheless, it's awfully helpful sometimes to be with a group of people um, that um, you can uh, begin to kind of connect with and, and share some of the challenges that you may be experiencing. We also have these workshops, and we do offer also publications that you can access from our website, and we also have a very active website. So um, in any event, definitely take advantage of these services. They're free, and you might be surprised about the range of things that we could offer you that might really help just with your day-to-day experiences and with your coping, so that's important, in addition to what your healthcare team can offer. And now we do have time for questions, and um, so I'm going to ask... uh, Glenda, uh, to just one more time, give you those directions, and then we're going to try to we're going to start taking as many of your questions as possible. Thank you. And ladies and gentlemen, again, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to move yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit a question by clicking ask a question. And we have a question from one of our online participants, um, and I'm going to... Um, give this question to Dr. Yi. Um, for multiple spinal compression fractures, what is the best approach to pain reduction other than opioids? And I'm going to ask Dr. Yi to address this question in a general way, and then, of course, we do recommend that you go back to your treating healthcare team, a palliative team, um, and just to be sure you get, you know, what's customized for you. But if, Dr. Yi, if you could speak to this in a general way so that everyone in the audience who's having these issues could benefit from this question. Right, so uh, spinal compression fractures are, uh, as people in the audience are aware, they they can be a complication associated with multiple myeloma, or perhaps the way that patients uh, present to that, that, or or the way that their their myeloma presents itself. And I think for patients who have a painful or who have a compression fracture that's painful, I think one approach that we commonly uses uh, this approach called uh, kyphoplasty. And in kyphoplasty, uh, this is a, an outpatient procedure where the person who does the procedure, it could be a surgeon or a radiologist, uh, he or she uh, finds the bone that has the compression and actually uh, injects, uh, uses a balloon to kind, of in, uh, to kind of restore some of the height and injects cement into the compressed bone. And by doing that, 
in addition to restoring some of the height, it also people found that the act of injecting some of the cement into the compressed bone can actually be really effective for treating uh, the pain that for for these compression fractures, which can be quite um, you know which can be quite painful. And you know there was one recent study which showed that you know with by using where a recent study which found patients who had compression fractures from from cancer were a significant proportion from multiple myeloma. They found that the compared to uh, you know conservative management with pain medications, they found that the kyphoplasty was led to significant improvement in uh, reduction in you know in terms of getting the quality of life back and in reduction in pain. I think that. Usually, with with with, the, with these approaches, usually it's kind of a multidisciplinary approach because there are some situations where, some in some patients, occasionally surgery might be the best option for treating bone-related complications from multiple myeloma. Where if there's if there's a situation where the area of compression is close to the spinal cord, and there's concern that the spinal that this could lead to a more serious uh, neurological complication. So occasionally. Surgery is used, but for many patients, kyphoplasty can be uh, effective for that. Uh, related to that too is that not uncommonly, some patients may need more more than one kyphoplasty to address the bone-related, uh, the, the pain-related compression fractures. And sometimes, when patients have a kyphoplasty, that area it strengthens that bone, and when you strengthen that bone there, it sort of might expose a weakness in other parts of the spine. And sometimes patients can have compression fractures following the initial kyphoplasty. So, um, so I think that you know the, the, these compression fractures are you know are, are are really an ongoing challenge for many patients. And I think the kyphoplasty, along with pain management, along with treating the underlying disease, and and the bone agents are all part of how uh, part of the treatment. And, and additionally. In some patients, uh, if they're, you know, radi- if there's also, in addition to compression, sometimes radiation can be uh, useful as well if there's a, a large soft tissue component uh, associated with uh, that area. So radiation can sometimes be used for some pa- in certain situations for, for managing the pain. Excellent. Very comprehensive. Thank you very much. That's excellent. Um, and I believe we have a telephone question. Is that right, Glenda? Yes, and our first question comes from the line of Susan R. Your line is now open. Hi. Um, what I was wondering is, uh, this is for Dr. Lee, um, which one of these drugs that you suggested is is least likely to cause uh, osteonecrosis? That's an excellent question. I'm going to ask Dr. Yee to address this in a general way. I think probably uh, that's right. the question everyone asks. So, I guess. So, um, so it turns out in that in that clinical trial, which compared uh, denosumab-exgiva to uh, zoledronic acid, I mean, in both cases, the rate of osteonecrosis of the jaw was low. But it, it turns out that the 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 actual percentage was a little bit higher with the denosumab compared to the zoledronic acid, and I think it may reflect the fact that the, the nosumab or exgiva is a more potent uh, inhibitor of the osteoclast. But ha- having said that, that the, even though the rate might be a little bit higher, I don't think it's statistically significant. That hasn't, um, that, it, it, it hasn't affected my, uh, you know, just my, my, for some patients, I think, that for many patients, I think this is, is the best drug. So it hasn't really influenced my decision to use it that significantly. And could you comment, uh, Dr. E, just on the kind of dental issues that people might have that could contribute to that? Because I, I know we often, on some of the programs, we don't have a dentist on today's program, but we often do talk about people, um, you know, getting their dental work taken care of if they can, and it's not always possible before um, they start treatment. Again, that isn't always possible, but also there are certain types of treatment that one might be having dentistry-wise that, that need to be thought through carefully with um with their oncologist in, in terms of these agents, or if you could, or if, that, if you could say something about that, right? So um, you know, you know, going into medicine, I didn't think I'd spend as much time thinking about teeth, unlike unlike this current situation, where you know, with these drugs that we use, you know, they can have uh, you know this osteonecrosis of the jaw that that that's, that the, spe- the speaker asked, as well as Carolyn, we've been talking about. I think, generally speaking, most patients do just fine. With uh, uh, 
you know, on on, on these drugs. I, I think I, I have more concern in particular where patients have really not uh, where their dentition where there's more room for improvement. And usually most patients are pregnant cognizant of if they have dental work that needs to be done, such as, you know, extractions or major overhauls of their teeth that need to be done. And generally speaking, uh, for those patients, if, if I meet them for the first time, I would advise them to see a dentist first to have, you know, if any teeth need to be extracted, to have them extracted. So that way I can give that time, significant time to heal, like ideally three months before uh, starting, you know, zoledronic acid or starting, you know, denosumab. Um, as patients are on treatment and, you know, some, of course, visits to the dentist are not uncommon, and I think, you know, cleanings, fillings, root canals are all fine, that there's no special precautions that are needed. Again, the major concern becomes situations where, you know, somebody needs to have a tooth pulled that they didn't appreciate until, like, into this treatment. And, you know, as, you know, because we're with these patients, patients are living, or living long, we're, we're with these patients for, for the long haul. And of course, dental issues occur. Um, I think one, and related to dental extraction, is also the dental implants. And certainly, if anyone's having a dental implant, I would certainly pause, you know, any denosumab or, or zoledronic acid treatment. I think there are some situations where, uh, you know, the I would wait until the disease is the myeloma is under, you know, I probably if somebody was thinking about having a dental implant done, I probably you know, would wait until the disease, until the initial course of treatment, if it does include a transplant or if people decide to do a course of three drug therapies, their initial therapy, wait till that's like finished and they've achieved the best possible response before pursuing more involved dental work. Excellent. Very, very comprehensive. Dr. Benson, did you want to add anything? Or is this a really, it's an area that people always are asking questions about, so... No, I think uh, uh, Dr. Yee has done an excellent job of talking about this. I, I'll just make one other comment. is Generally, patients who have poor dental hygiene are more susceptible to osteonecrosis of the jaw. And so one thing we, we do recommend to patients is, if possible, if there isn't super urgency, that they have a, a dental checkup, get their teeth cleaned, and really try to fix any uh, hygiene problems prior to starting a bisphosphonate or denosumab. So this has been a very comprehensive. I thank you both for this. Um, really, um, I hope this has been helpful. Um, and please do go back to treating healthcare team in terms of your own decision making. But these are very helpful and important. This is a very important information to have, so, so thank you. Thanks for that great question, and thank you, our speakers, for addressing it so comprehensively. And we have another question, I believe, um, Glenda, yes? Yes, and our next question comes from the line of Stephanie Kay. Your line is now open. Thank you so much, Caroline. As usual, excellent, excellent <laughs> seminar. Thank you. Um, my question is, being a psychiatric nurse and licensed social worker and myself a previous uh, cancer patient, I'm a cancer survivor, who has peripheral neuropathy. My question is helping other patients with peripheral neuropathy. I'd like to know more about, I use the alpha lipoic acid, the vitamin B6 and B12. I asked, I'd like to ask Dr. Lee, if there is studies being done right now on alpha lipoic acid, B6 and B12 for peripheral neuropathy. Thank you so much. All right. Well, th yeah, thank, right, so th thank you for that, uh, that question. I think... Um, you know, alpha. Yeah, definitely. There are definitely patients who use uh, you know alpha lipoic acid, B6 and B12, and I think there's a lot of you know heterogeneity in the the usage of this. Um, per, in my practice, I don't you know routinely use uh, alpha lipoic acid, B6 or B12, but I know others who do. I think um, you know in terms of whether or not they're you know ongoing. I'm not as directly familiar with studies using these drugs. Uh, in for managing peripheral neuropathy, I, I have tended to use if, if patients report peripheral neuropathy, I tend to think about you know either decreasing the dosage of the drug that's presumably involved, or trying a different drug, or trying to manage you know some of the um, the side effects with you know gabapentin, duloxetine, or using uh, pregabalin. Uh, and I think there are selected patients where you know complementary therapies can be. You know, very helpful, such as 
you know, acupuncture. And, you know, I, I, I agree that, you know, peripheral neuropathy is something that for many patients, it can be very, um, you know, debilitating, life-altering. And, you know, I wish we had a, a great treatment for that. And so for some, some patients have, you know, I think I, I keep an open mind and I, I think about even, you know, medicinal marijuana could be potentially be useful. So, uh, but I, I think this is one area where there's uh, room for improvement. And I don't know, I, I think, you know, but for, for how, how we approach this, I think there's a lot of variation. So I'm not sure if, you know, if Dr. Bensinger, may, uh, he might have uh, a different opinion of how he, how he thinks about peripheral neuropathy for these, for our patients. Thank you. Well, thanks very much, Dr. And Dr. Bensinger, do you want to add? It's wonderful to have both of you on the call. Yes. I think uh, peripheral neuropathy is very difficult uh, to manage and uh, relieve the symptoms from it. Uh, the best uh, uh, treatment is to you be proactive and try to avoid significant peripheral neuropathy during the treatment period. So if you have a drug or drugs that are leading to significant neuropathy, either reducing the dosage or in some cases eliminating the drug from the treatment scheme is the best approach, it's really better to avoid getting significant peripheral neuropathy because the treatment is, is challenging. I'm unaware of any trials looking at alpha-lipoic acid, but like Dr. Yi, we have occasional patients that seem to benefit from it, and I think it's useful, but I'm, I, I don't think there are any ongoing trials looking at it. Awesome. Thank you. And I think there's an, uh, that's very excellent, and um, I hope that's helpful to Stephanie and others on the call, and of course, um, and our next question, Linda? Yes, and our next question comes from the line of Angie. Your line is now open. Angie, your line is now open. Hello. <clears throat> My oh, question. Yes, hello. Thank you. Uh, thank you. I have a question on neuropathy, but I think it was just answered. I was told I could take uh, uh, the Lyrica 100 milligram, but it does put you to sleep. So 100 milligrams I have to take at night in addition to all other drugs that I'm taking. So I'm wondering about the effectiveness of Lyrica for treatment of neuropathy. And I think this question goes to Dr. Yi or Dr. B. Okay, thank you. Oh, thank you for that question. And um, Andy, uh, do you want to start Dr. Yi with that one? Um, it... Yeah, uh, so um, I think... I've definitely used, uh, you know, Lyrica for, for patients with peripheral neuropathy. Uh, anecdotally, I've, I've found that, you know, in some patients, because normally we, I typically use gabapentin first, and some of that might have to do with the fact that Lyrica for some insurance plans requires a preauthorization. So for many patients, it's easier to gain access to uh, you know, gabapentin. And I've just, just followed up with the previous comment about clinical trials and neuropathy, you know, there was a trial that did look at Cymbalta for peripheral neuropathy, and it was for peripheral neuropathy related to a different uh, type of drug, um, oxaliplatin, that was used that that's mainly used in colon cancer treatment. They so they found that Cymbalta uh, was helpful for those for those patients. So there was so there so that kind of motivates some of the decision making behind using Cymbalta for peripheral neuropathy. Um, for for Lyrica, uh, but. I think anecdotally, I, I do have some patients where if gabapentin hasn't been helpful, the Lyrica has been helpful. Uh, in terms of the, uh, you know, the problem, you know, the limitation with these drugs is that they all can be kind of, you know, double-edged uh, swords in terms of, you know, while they can be helpful for the neuropathy, uh, the, the, uh, they, they can be associated with such side effects as, you know, as the sedation. That, that can be so. I, think, I don't. I don't. I wish there was some great way around that, but it's sort of the limitation, the known limitation with these uh, with these types of medications. Excellent. Um, and Dr. Benson, did you want to add anything to that? Or no, I, th I think Dr. You did a great job. Uh, I don't have anything to add. Okay. And I think we have one more question and one more telephone question before we conclude. Yes. Yes, and our next question comes from the line of Joji. 
Your line is not open. Maybe Joe, your line Joe. is not open. Hello, maybe Hello. it's Joe. Now, my question is on costs leading to the stress after three years of having multi-myeloma. <clears throat> my cost rose from 17000 to 24000 That's an increase of $7,000 per year over this time period. Why can't we go in and just start off with the cost? And if we're going to have this for 15 or 20 years, continue it at the base cost rather than adding 6% compounded every year. Thank you. Dr. Bensinger, could you comment on that? Well, yeah. I think it's a very good question. Uh, the new drugs that we have are excellent, but they're, the costs are more and more, and the financial toxicity to patients is extraordinary. Um, I don't think we have adequate controls in place to uh, um, control some of these things. Uh, I, you're, I, don't, I hate to be political, but the current uh, government uh, has prohibited um, the Medicare and uh, the VA from negotiating prices with drug companies. So the drug companies have free hand to set any price they want, and uh, it just has to be paid. If there were greater leverage given to the government agencies to negotiate prices, I think it would help a lot. The other thing to keep in mind is that some of these drugs now are becoming generic. For example, uh, Velcade or Bortezomib is now generic, and there are potentially uh, cheaper versions of these drugs that are available. But I think the cost overall is becoming greater and greater, and every one of these new drugs costs significantly more than old ones. Another example is denosumab, the, the injectable Exgeva. That's much more expenses, expensive than zoledronic acid. So I only use it in patients where there's a clear difference, such as kidney problems. But overall, I agree with you. It's really difficult, and I don't know a good solution other than to become political and ask our ask your congressman to take a greater role in trying to control drug costs. And this is an excellent question. It's a wonderful question to conclude the program with because actually um, these are issues that many of the uh, cancer organizations also are advocating in behalf of these costs. I know ASK, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, is advocating about these extensive costs that people are experiencing. And I would say that also there are some programs that do allow you to get the Copay Foundation. Some of these um, do help with these costs, but nevertheless, these are extraordinary costs. So I think um, I, I don't want people also to throw up their hands and think I can't get any treatment because, indeed, I would definitely uh, contact um, our staff here at Cancer Care just because we do have a number of financial programs ourselves to help, and, but there, and we also have um, references for people to utilize. So I think Dr. Bensinger has made excellent points, and I think that um, this is definitely its own program. We do periodically do programs on managing the cost of cancer, and so, and I think working with your healthcare team around these costs and being upfront about it with them in terms of what is manageable for you and what isn't, and are there products that you can, that can be comparable for you in terms of your care as well. Um, I forgot to you. Did you want to add to that as well? Sorry. No, no. I I I completely agree with uh, Dr. Bangsinger and the speaker's concern. I think cost is one of the the biggest challenges uh, uh, for our field because uh, you know as we come up with these bigger, better, better treatments, you know there's there's always going to be a cost that's associated with them, and and I think uh, it, it's going to be a challenge for everyone involved, political, you know, from you know. Uh, from top down in terms of how, how do we get these drugs to our patients without uh, uh, and, and without causing excessive financial burden for our patients. So I think that um, this will be, we will be, uh, I know when you write, we're going to send you all evaluations at the end of the call, and I will 
I hope you all write that topic in, financial toxicity or the costs, and we will we will be doing programs on that topic and have done them in the past, and it's really important. Um, I want to thank our speakers. You've been extraordinary. I want to thank our participants. This has been an extraordinary call. Lots of people on the phone asking lots of good questions. I know there are more of you in queue, so I I want to actually um, so I want to kind of tell you how you can get your questions answered if you haven't had a chance to get your question answered because I know there are many more of you with questions or we'll have questions in a couple of days or weeks. So the one thing I will always recommend to all of you is that you definitely want to contact your healthcare team. They are, of course, they know you the best. They know everything about you. And if they don't know something about you, you can tell them directly. Um, but I know many of you like to check with other organizations for information as well. So I always recommend the National Cancer Institute. They have a toll-free number, and they also have um, a website. Um, and the website is particularly useful because it has a live chat feature. Um, so just um, not to despair, we, right after this program, you'll all be getting an evaluation and all of the detailed additional resources that you can add, access to get help and questions answered will be listed there that are credible resources. The nice thing about the National Cancer is they have this live chat feature and you can post your questions so anywhere in the world where you have access to a computer and can get onto their website, which is quite simple to do, www.cancer.gov, and you can go ahead and post your question. The information specialist will pull up all the most cogent information that you could utilize, and, and that will be very helpful to you. We also are partnering with a number of organizations that are blood cancer organizations, and they also have, of course, um, uh, information for you um, that would be useful to you to access those organizations as well. And for any of you who would like to take advantage of the services of cancer care, please do contact us. We have both a, a, a HOPE line, 1-800-813-4673, and we also um, have a website, www.cancer.org. www.cancer.org, yes www.cancercare.org. I'm sorry, sorry. So it's www.cancercare.org. And that's a wonderful source of information for all of you as well, both in this country and internationally um, as well. And you can access um, all of the information you might need, questions you might have. Um, that website is very useful to you. So um, as we conclude the program today, I don't want any one of you to feel that you're alone in coping with myeloma or with cancer. You now can see that you have a, um, there are lots of uh, organizations and people out there to help you. Please take advantage of them. Do contact us. Um, we can be of help to you as well. I want to wish you all a very fine day, and thank you all very much for your participation today. It's been an extraordinary call. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the, the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.